He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. The cross forms every aspect of the Christian's life. The cross, Paul says, causes us to see the whole world anew, like spokes emanating from the hub of a tire. All Christian doctrine flows from the cross. And so, Lord willing, I too will preach Christ crucified. See, I believe heaven touched earth in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe the powers of darkness were lassoed at the cross. I believe that Satan and all of his minions laugh at our perceived success stories. But the demons shudder and the heavens quake and the angels sing for joy and my Father is glorified when we preach Christ crucified. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Look at you. Do you know who you are? You are the sons and daughters of God. And you could have chosen any God you wanted. There's many of them available and uh, for sale every day. But you chose the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God we see in the face of Jesus Christ. And he could have chosen anyone he wanted, but he chose you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special treasure, as Peter puts it. And so you gather together this Sunday morning, as you do every Sunday morning. You get up on the first day of the week, get out of bed, you put on your shoes. You say no to the hundreds of things that are clamoring for your attention. And you bravely gather together to go on record as his people. And together, you show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I am thrilled to be among you. I've read about you, holy people of God. How you marched out of Egypt, armed only with an abiding trust in the God of angel armies, and how you conquered temptation for decades in the wilderness to make it into the promised land. And when it seemed like the worst moments in your life, when you found yourself in foreign lands in captivity, he loved you. He remembered you. And he rescued you. And he brought you back. And he put your feet on solid ground. And he built a hedge of protection around you and treated you like, like his very own. Do you know who you are? You're not who the world thinks you are. You're not even who the church thinks you are. You are what he declares you to be. His washed, his sanctified, his justified, lovely sons and daughters because you belong to Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And you're sitting there saying, well, that's good and everything, but what I really want to know is just who are you? 
You know, nothing makes a church quite as nervous as changing preachers. And trust me, the nerves go both ways. And we don't really know each other, so this might feel a little bit like a first date. Do you remember those? Nerves could reach a fever pitch. So we try to put our best foot forward. We picked out our best clothes. We finally got around to using those crest white strips that had been sitting in our bathroom drawer for months. We got a fresh haircut, but not too fresh a haircut. We practiced our smile, and we promised ourselves we would not bring up our credit score or our list of baby names we've already picked out for our future children, right? The goal was to present the best image of me. But we both know that if any long-term relationship is going to ensue at some point, sooner or later, we're going to have to see the real deal on both sides. And the more honest you can be at the beginning, the better it is for us in the long run. Back in 2005, the college church was between preachers, and Neil Pryor gave a sermon full of immense wisdom, and I remember his beginning illustration. He said he he found a bulletin article that read this way, Preacher found to suit everyone's liking. After searching many fruitless searches, a model preacher has been found guaranteed to suit any church that desires to call him. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He'll hold the audience in his condemnation of sin, but never hurt anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. in every type of work, from preaching to custodian services. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, entertains the brethren often, buys books of all description, has a nice family, drives a good car, and gives $30 a week back to the church. Stands ready to contribute to every good work with which he is confronted. He is 26 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. <laughs> He's tall and short, handsome and heavy set, one brown eye, one blue eye. Hair parted in the middle, left side dark and straight, right side blonde and wavy, has a burning desire to be with the teenagers and spends all of his time with the old folks. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a good sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. I love that story. It reminds me that no new preacher is going to fit everyone's expectations. How could he possibly? Every minister, like every member, has some God-given gifts and has a God-given calling to use those gifts to the glory of God. I know in my own marriage, I saw some things I really liked about Katie the first time I met her. But over the years, I've grown to really love things about her, the most important things about her that I didn't even know were there the first time we met. And I can't wait to get to know you and to see those things that are not present in any first impression. And like any long-term relationship, the end of the story is often far richer and far different than the beginning. My first full-time ministry job was at the ripe old age of 19. There is a special place in heaven for those kind-hearted but clearly out-of-their-mind people who hired a 19-year-old to be their preacher. I say that, but it wasn't really the will of the congregation that I get the job. See, I saw an ad in the paper 
I was a junior in college, and the ad was for a full-time preacher an hour away, and so I sent in my resume. Got a call to come try out, and I did. A few weeks passed by, and then I got a call to sit and talk with the elders. Drove down there. I felt pretty good about myself sitting in that room, and then they spoke. You know, we misread your resume. We had a very strict criteria to only invite people who were graduated, married, and had children. You're not graduated. You're not married. And given those two facts, I guess it's a good thing you don't have any children. But we'd like to offer you the job anyway. Will you take it? My first Sunday on the job, that afternoon, was the first elders-preacher meeting. And it was always the job of the preacher to read the minutes from the last meeting. And they just assumed I'd fill in where the last guy left off. But no one had thought to read over the minutes before I began to read them aloud. Polled the congregation concerning new preacher. First choice called, declined. Second choice called, declined. Third choice called, accepted. And if memory serves, they were kind enough to leave the poll numbers by every name. And in a church of 100, I had 10 votes. That story ends remarkably well. Four years later, I was so loved, so welcomed, so ministered to. As God is my witness, I can't tell you who those ten were. I was loved so much. And I know it will be the same here. There is no one in the world that I love more than my wife, Katie. And she and I have decided to put ourselves and the little girl that we love more than life itself under the loving protection and care and guidance of your shepherds and to be members of this family of believers to call it our home. I've been told there are 700 of you that call Westside your home. It's going to take me a while to get to know you, but I'm looking forward to it. And until then, I think it's only fair that I lay my cards on the table and tell you where I'm coming from. I'm sure you've seen in your bulletin that my sermon today is entitled, A Know-Nothing Preacher. That's Paul's own description of himself in Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 2. At first blush, Corinth seemed like the ideal place for a speaker with a message. I mean, everyone would drop everything and huddle around the new speaker with excitement and anticipation to rival game day at Reynolds Razorback Stadium. But there was a catch, at least for Paul. You see, they came to hear a speaker, not to receive a message. They saw great power in public speaking. I mean, speakers had great presence. They spoke with eloquence and and the best wisdom of the age. Speakers were graded on how well they could capture a crowd's attention by verbal manipulation and cunning. One of the greatest speakers of that era wrote a book and said, when I came to the great cities, they begged me to speak to them. They flocked to me from the break of dawn, and I didn't have to pay a dime for their praise because my speech resulted in everyone admiring me. But Paul, 
called by a crucified and resurrected Lord, armed with the countercultural message of the cross, defied all expectation. When I came to you, brothers, Paul writes, I didn't come to you proclaiming the mystery of God with eloquent, lofty speeches and human wisdom. In fact, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, full of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, then what did Paul preach in Corinth? If he didn't give them smooth words and fair speeches, if he didn't focus on simply the wisdom of the age and the gift of Gad, but he wanted to demonstrate the Spirit's power so that their faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the Spirit power and the power of God, what did he talk about? What did he do differently? I decided, says Paul in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This seems to be Paul's mission statement in Corinth. And it's my mission statement at Westside. I decided. The older translations say, I determined. Boy, that really captures it. I made up my mind. I made the deliberate decision. You know, preachers ought to be intentional. You've chosen to come and spend an hour in holy reverence to God. The elders here have asked me not just to accept a job, but to accept a calling, to dare to stand in this pulpit and to deliver God's message of encouragement and challenge and saving grace. There are 168 hours in a week, and some of those may be filled with pain, and worry, and confusion, and even despair. And then you come here, and you beg to know if there's a word from the creator of the universe to give some some meaning to this often upside-down world. And my sermon is one-fifth of one percent of your week. I think intentionality is called for. It's too important. The need for preaching is too great. Paul was intentional. And what was he intentional about? I decided to know nothing among you. Now, Paul's not being anti-intellectual. Far from it. I agree with the speaker who came to Wheaton College 40 years ago and said the greatest danger facing evangelical Christianity is anti-intellectualism. That is, wanting sermons with no depth, sermons that might tickle my heart but not answer any of the most profound questions of my life. Paul deals with all kinds of issues in 1 Corinthians. Paul's not being anti-intellectual. He's talking about how he operates. He's not allergic to book quoting and careful phrasing. He's talking about what people do with that. He's not interested in verbal bullying or intellectual vanity. He's not looking for a pat on the back. There are all kinds of no-somethings in Corinth. But Paul said, I, I eschew all of that. 
And I just want to be a know-nothing preacher. I think the secret to know-nothing preaching is to see yourself as a know-nothing first. Paul describes himself over and over again as a person of no account. And isn't that how God works? God comes to Moses and says, I'm calling you. And Moses says, but God, I'm not eloquent. Never have been. And now since you started talking to your servant, I don't have it. God came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, I'm calling you. And Jeremiah said, but God, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. And when we feel not up to the task, we try so hard to be somebody. We say to ourselves, boy, if I just use the right illustration, if I just quote the right book, if I can just make my voice sound a little bit like Jim McGuigan's Irish accent, then maybe I can preach a powerful sermon as if the power is in the speaker and not in the message. No. As one commentator puts it, it will be in the faithful preaching of Christ crucified that they will see the true power of the Spirit at work in people's lives. Just give them Jesus and let him do the rest. And so Paul, for all these reasons, says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. You know, he is the central figure in every text. A poet once said, Christ plays in 10,000 places. I'm here to tell you, Christ appears in 10,000 verses. There are three New Testament writers, Paul, James, and John, who simply copy three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are simply recording the words of Jesus himself when they say all of the law and all of the prophets can be summarized in two sentences. Love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. But if Jesus is God, and if he shows us how to love our neighbor, and if how we love our neighbor is how we treat God, then all the law and the prophets and all of Scripture can be summarized not in two sentences, but in two words. Jesus Christ. Either pointing to him, or speaking of him, or modeling your life after him. You know, we can obsess about a lot of things. <coughs> How we're going to come across, if we're going to be well-liked, our favorite issues, whether the church is going to grow. But Paul was obsessed with Christ. It's on every page. And if I'm going to preach the gospel, I've got to be obsessed with him too. When you hear a sermon from this pulpit, are you going to know him better? Will those who have yet to taste the sweetness that you know from your relationship with God through Christ come, from, come to move from knowing about him to knowing him? I pray that when you leave a service, you won't be talking about an illustration or a technique. You'll be saying to yourself, I see God so clearly now. My heart burning within me as my love for Jesus grows and grows. But Paul doesn't end by simply saying his preaching is centered on Jesus. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. The cross 
forms every aspect of the Christian's life. Every aspect. Paul's not saying every sermon I preach is titled The Cross. What he's saying is every sermon I preach, every word that comes out of my mouth flows from the cross. The cross, Paul says, causes us to see the whole world anew. Like spokes emanating from the hub of a tire, all Christian doctrine flows from the cross. And so, Lord willing, I too will preach Christ crucified. See, I believe heaven touched earth in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe the powers of darkness were lassoed at the cross. I believe that Satan and all of his minions laugh at our perceived success stories, and they relish when we get so focused on our own issues. But the demons shudder, and the heavens quake, and the angels sing for joy, and my Father is glorified when we preach Christ crucified. Because Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. You know, a church can spend all of their time and energy focused on putting together a smooth running and fine sounding service. And preachers can put together a packaged gospel complete with five steps to a happier marriage, five steps to a higher bank account, and five steps to a healthier you. And I know there's a time and place for all of that. We want better marriages, and how we use our money is an act of discipleship. The cross speaks to all of that. But if Christ never came, if he never died, and he never rose, there would still be eight simple ways to be nicer to your wife than you were yesterday. We are in the demon-shuddering business. And every sermon is a wrestling match between the father of eternity and the prince of the power of the air. And when we preach Christ crucified, God is declared the winner every time. And guess what? Christ starts doing the drawing. And we start seeing people falling to their knees, denying themselves. And what do you know? Our marriages begin to get better. You know you. You before me and Christ before all. Our generosity grows and our addiction consumption lessens as we begin to say Christ fulfills my every need. Do you see the point? Anything less than Christ crucified is a bar too low. Anything else lacks the power to challenge the inner demons and the idols that are trying to take over our lives and take God's place. Anything else robs God of his glory, substituting 30 minutes with Oprah for the title match between God and the father of lies. We preach God taking on human flesh to fix what we broke, to mend what we could never mend. We preach God in Christ reconciling the world to himself and, by extension, reconciling our marriages and our checkbook, our kids' soccer schedules, 
and our daily goals. If you want to get to know the new preacher, I hope that you've got a glimpse of my desire to glorify Christ and put him front and center in every sermon. If you came here licking your wounds because you're getting beat down by the world, I hope you've heard and met a Savior who knows what that's like, but also because he died in your place, has made you heir of all things and calls you brother under the lordship of God our Father. What if you came here today in need of a prescription for the sin that's trying to take over your life? Instead of telling you to be a bit nicer to your spouse or to carve out 15 minutes to read your Bible or to add a little religion to an already healthy plate, we here at Westside are going to challenge you to deny yourself and take up the cross and run to him and to give him the key to open every door in your heart, every room that like Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Do you want a better life? Do you want to be a better wife or husband, daughter or parent? Are you looking for real peace and joy in your life? Catch a glimpse of Christ crucified and let the hope of resurrection take your lackluster life and give you back a brand new one. The real answer to 10 steps to a better you is 10 steps down the aisle into the arms of Christ who's begging you to believe he was crucified for you and begging for you to be crucified with him. Let me tell you something. You've never seen a better you than a you after God's gotten through with you. Let the gospel of his son by the power of His Spirit, mold us into the men and women, the congregation, the people of God we've been called to be. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.